Welcome to episode 35 of the Princeton Podcast, produced by the podcast production team at HG Media, providing audio and video production services here in Princeton since 1999. In this episode, our Princeton Podcast host, Mayor Mark Frieda, welcomed Jill Berry, Executive Director of Morven Museum and Garden. In addition to discussing Morven's role in the history of our nation, as well as Princeton for the past 250 years, Jill described Morven Museum's permanent collection suite of galleries that tells the story of everyone that lived and worked on this national historic site, including Richard Stockton, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, Robert Wood Johnson Jr., and five New Jersey governors, as well as the women, children, three generations of enslaved people, immigrant servants, and later employees. Mark and Jill also discussed Morvin's new Stockton Education Center, with its expanded programming, improved gardens, and Morvin's upcoming signature events. So without any further introduction, let's join our host, Mark Frieda, and his guest, Jill Berry, for episode 35 of the Princeton Podcast. Jill, thanks for joining us today. Delighted to be here. So let's start with this. How long have you been the executive director at Morvin Museum and Garden? Six and a half years. It's hard to believe. Wow, that time goes by. It does. So let's, like, from a big picture point of view, what, what is the mission of of Morvan. Sure. Morvan was built by a signer of the Declaration of Independence. The land was actually granted in 1701, so it is a very early part of Princeton's history. The original structure was built in the 1750s, the mid-1750s, and burned to the ground. Hmm. So what you see there is not the original site. The original building was actually the far west end of the building, and then it grew eastward over time. But Richard Stockton was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. His family was there for five generations. Robert Wood Johnson rented the house for 14 years. And then it was New Jersey's first governor's mansion. So what we do, it was never a single family household. So what we do is interpret American history through the lens of the house. But that is just amazing. <laughs> I didn't realize all of that history you just There's shared. There's a lot going on in that building. Wow, that's amazing. So what, what was the original purpose of, the, of Morvin when it was first built? It then? was a home. The Richard Stockton, oh, the Stockton and home. his wife, Annis, lived there. And it surprises some people to learn, not everyone, but there were enslaved people there right. for the first three generations of Stocktons. Yeah, yeah. That's an unfortunate part of the history throughout the town. And it's the history of America, though. Yeah. There's no getting around it. There's no getting around it. So, you know, you, you mentioned that it was the governor's mansion for a while. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to, trying to test my recollection of history. So I think probably, well, instead of me guessing, why don't you tell us what governors were there? <laughs> I happen to know the answer. Yeah. So it's a story, but it is a fun story. So we do tell it. That we know Walter Edge did come to Morvin both when Helen and Baird Stockton lived there and then also when the Johnsons were in residence. And the story is he's driving up 206 from Trenton and he's thinking to himself, there's no governor's mansion in New Jersey. And so he drives up the driveway and knocks on the door. And Helen Hamilton Shield Stockton at this point is living in Peacock Inn. And so she's not home. And the houseman says, oh, I'll take your offer to Mrs. Stockton. And when Helen hears that he wants to turn it into the governor's mansion, that is right up her alley. And she thinks that's a fabulous idea. So Governor Edge buys it as a person 
and later sells it to the state for a dollar. And interestingly, when Helen sold it to Walter Edge, she put in the caveat that it needed to be the governor's mansion or open to the public. When Walter Edge sold it to the state, he put in it had to be the governor's mansion open to the public or revert to his heirs, which is very important because after Governor Byrne leaves, there was talk about turning it into the police barracks. And there was a woman in Trenton who went through the paperwork and said, oh no, we have to find the edge heirs. And the state of New Jersey says, oh no, no, we meant museum. So (laughs) (laughs) the devil is in the detail in the paperwork. Wow. Well, great save though, because that's tremendous that all that had's happening there. All right. So let me just shift gears a little bit. So Jill, are you from, from here? Or from or? I am not. I moved here for the job six and a half years ago. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and my career has really taken me all over the east of the Mississippi. Okay. So let's, let's, let's jump into that. Maybe where were you before you came here? Most recently, I was at the Montgomery Museum of Fine Arts in Alabama. Ah, okay. A little bit of, little bit away. Yes. Um, Before that, I was in Florida at the Naples Botanical Garden. I was also at the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore, the Cincinnati Art Museum, and the Cleveland Museum of Art. So I come from a varied, cultured background. Wow, you really do. That's a great variety <laughs> of places. That's tremendous. Um, so what, you know, Joe, what type of education do you need to end up in a position that you have here? I mean, I actually learned most of it through trial by fire. I, my degrees are in psychology with a minor in religion. And when I graduated, my father said, okay, you're equipped to do nothing. But <laughs> I, when I got into the cultural sphere as a fundraiser, I really found that I enjoyed sharing the stories. And so started in fundraising, then got into external affairs, which is a fancy name for marketing, and then got into museum operations further along in my career. So it's just sort of, you figure it out as you go along and it's been fun so far. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing where life takes you. Yes. And sometimes it's great to just Oh, as a kid, nobody would have. Who would have guessed? Right. right? Exactly. (laughs) So I want to jump back to, you know, how you said the so it's not the original Morvin that burnt down, but that the building expanded over time. Mm-hmm. So is, can you just help us describe that a little so more? So the original building was a wood structure and had a brick fireplace or a brick hearth. When that building burned, the hearth stood because it was brick. So the next building was a brick building around that original hearth. So if you come into the orientation gallery, you can see that original structure. The original brick house was a story and a half. So if you stand in front of the house and really look, you can see where the windows had been lifted, where it went up to two floors. Very quickly, they ran out of room. It was a big family. And again, they had enslaved people living in the house with them. You know, they did not have outbuildings at that point in time for other people. So added the center block. So when you drive up and you see the big portion of the house, that's the center block. And then when... The second Richard Stockton, the builder's home, took ownership. Annis, his mother-in-law, and his new wife didn't really get along, so they added another <laughs> addition. And then over time, it, there was a final addition going to the east. So it just sort of rambles on. Right. So how big was the... So it's, you know, how big was the property? I mean, original property was 5,000 acres. It is now five acres. So, and I know we were talking yesterday, there is what is called the Morvan track in Princeton. That was the last part to be sold off. And that was, I'm not going to remember the time. 
A while ago. A while ago. (laughs) (laughs) And then, so at some point in the last several years, I think Mm -hmm. the property did expand a little bit, right? Because didn't, wasn't there, was there the house behind the property? So very shortly after we became incorporated as Historic Morven Inc., which was in the late 80s, it was how are we dealing with the property? And that's when the renovations happened. The initial renovations happened. We've had several since. And a donor actually bought the house at 30 Boudinot Street and donated it to Morven. And so we actually operate that as a rental property right now. Ah, okay. Okay. Got it. So let's talk about the Stockton Education Center, because that that's a pretty impressive building. It's fun. That's our newest building. So we do have a building from every century on the property, <laughs> and that is our 2000s building. It opened five years ago, and before we had the Education Center, the biggest event we could have in the house was 28 people. And so we were very dependent on our friends like the Princeton Public Library and their public space, the university from time to time, the present day club, but we were always at the mercy of their calendars. And then if you're doing something at the library, which is a wonderful space, very few people would actually make their way all the way back to Morven to see whatever we were talking about. So from the early 2000s, they knew the board knew they needed to add space. So this building had always been under consideration. When I got here, the money had already been raised. So oh. that was the fun part, <laughs> or the hard part was already already done. And what's interesting is because we're a national historic landmark, any new building cannot look like an old building. You cannot mistake it for a historic building. So when people come and they're like, oh, it's a very contemporary building, that is very much on purpose. But the brick in the education center echoes the Commodore's wall, the brick wall in the garden. There's a very strange rule that the highest part of the Stockton Education Center cannot be any higher than the lowest windowsill on the house of the original building. So it's not 20 feet, it's like 18 feet and four inches or something very strange. But so we have all of these historical parameters we have to deal with. But now we can have, you know, over 100 people classroom style, we can have 80 seated at tables, and it really has opened up our programming, which has really expanded what we can do and how we serve the community. Yeah. No, I've been at a number of events and it's uh, the building is <clears throat> is well used. And I think that's a great way to say, so what are some of the things that, that happened there? Well, what one of the most interesting things we learned was during the pandemic, when the world shut down so suddenly, mm-hmm. the Princeton Symphony Orchestra was homeless. And so in having conversations with Marques over there, we figured out we could put a few musicians in the Stockton Education Center open all of the doors and pod the backyard, and he could continue offering an experience when there was very little to do. And that worked out so well that it grew into a whole series, and now we host the Princeton Festival in the parking lot each June. Right. And that's very impressive, too. The structure that's put in the parking lot is amazing. That You should see it go up. It is is a feat of engineering. (laughs) Well, you know, the partnerships that have been developed and that, that you guys develop mm-hmm. and go out and seek it, you know, it's, that, that is also very amazing. So, well, we do believe that the rising tide lifts all boats. You yeah. know, we do a lot with the historical society. We do things with the library, obviously the PSO. We're all too small to sort of be our own island. So yeah. it works much better yeah. banding together. Yeah. So it also brings up, to, you know, you said how that came about. So how did COVID impact 
Morvin? We had to shut our doors for 18 weeks, which was very, very hard. We had our Roosevelt exhibition up, which had been very popular. We were on target to have our highest attended year ever when that came crashing down. We did have to furlough staff for a period of time. We did get PPP funding, so we did bring everyone back as fast as we could. But the staff was really amazing. Again, we're sitting there not knowing if what was going to happen the next day. And that's when we turned our plant sale to an online sale. And the staff did that in about 11 days. Hmm. Um, and we actually benefited a great deal from everybody being locked at home. They all had their iPads and their computers and could put their plan their garden and buy their plants. <laughs> and so we had the most successful plant sale we had ever had, ever. And it changed how we do business. So we now do the plant sale online Every year, it's going live March 6th, if anybody needs to be shopping. Well, it'll run till, I think, April 10th, early April, and then the plants get delivered, and we do delivery the second week of May when it's safe to plant them, although it doesn't look like we're ever going to get frost again. But really, COVID has changed how we do business, that we do a lot of hybrid programs. Right now, we're in the middle of our Grand Homes and Gardens lecture series, so we bring speakers in. We have an on-site audience that enjoys a little hospitality, but then we have about an equal amount of people online. And we have people from not only all over the state, but all over the country, and a few people zoom in from all over the world. Mm. So we have a much broader reach than we've ever had before. So the hybrid model is not going away. No. Yeah. A lot of people have just embraced it. Lean in, lean into the problems. And I just, I just want to jump back to the plant sale because at times I am planting plants that have been bought there, but it's mostly my wife and daughter who pick out whatever to be, to be, to be purchased. And the quality and the variety is pretty amazing. It's really top notch. We have a fantastic horticulture staff. Charlie Tom Ford and Louise Sr. really go out of their way to find things that you're not going to find at Home Depot and Lowe's and make sure that they're good for the area. We spend a lot of time looking for deer resistant plants. And then this year we're also partnering with Sustainable Princeton and they're giving their good housekeeping seal of approval on some of our native R's and native plants that they're recommending for people to plant as well. So that's a a new initiative, but we're very excited about it. Yeah. And and one last thing on that is when I've gone to pick up the plants, it's actually a very fun experience. There's usually a bunch of people there. You see people, you know, you get to chit chat with people, but everybody's like real happy to see you. And they, you know, it's It's, anyway, it's a great experience. It's a fun crowd over there. I have to say. Yeah, Yeah, it is. It is. And we try very hard not to screw up your orders, but. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's important for people like me. All I know is it's green or it's red or whatever. (laughs) Well, we have a very, very type A person in charge of it. And every year it gets better and it's all gridded out and mathematically laid out. And I mean, it's now, we now have it down to a science. That first (laughs) year we were just sort of wandering around in the dark, figuring it out. And we did it, but it's a lot easier now than it used to be. Good to hear. Um, So let's talk about the uh, Colonial Revival Garden also. Sure. That garden actually came into play with Helen Hamilton Shield Stockton. And she was, we credit her for saving Morvan. So when she inherited the house, it had been a horse farm before the previous owner, the previous Stockton that owned it. And so it was run down and kind of tired. And Helen was a fancy woman and she wanted to go to Newport in the summer and go to the continent every year and here she is with this rundown house so she was 
disappointed in her inheritance there. But very quickly, the national or the colonial revival period took over the nation. And this was when everyone, it was the 1880s to 1910, and everyone was looking back to the founding of the country. And all of a sudden, she's like, wait a minute, I'm married to a descendant of the signer. I'm in the signer's home. Like, all of a sudden, things were looking. So she went on a building improvement tear, not to be believed. So we have the wainscoting, thanks to her. We have inlaid floors, thanks to her. But she also focused a lot on the gardens. And she was famous for embroidering the truth. So there is a story that she has that she found Annis's enslaved gardener who told her what to plant. But if you look at that story critically, that guy would have been over 100 years old, and I don't think that really happened. But she was really an early influencer. So as Monticello was being redone, Mount Vernon was being refurbished by the ladies there, she got in there, and in those books at the turn of the century, it is Monticello, Morven, Mount Vernon, and she had the second Garden Club of America meeting mm. at Morven. You know, she was a force of nature. Wow. That's great. And the gardens look great. And the gardens look great yeah. and look better every year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let me see if I got this right. Does Morven, I think, has both a permanent exhibition and then you also have more of a current. So you have like two different things happening? Yes. So on the first floor... We look at American history through the lens of the house and everyone that lived there. And that changes very little year, of, year over year. And then upstairs, as our legacy of being the governor's mansion, we celebrate sort of all things New Jersey. So we recently closed Ma Bell, the mother of invention, which was wildly popular. We got all of the Ma Bell Either former employees, current employees, children of employees, they all came and really had a good time. And we're getting ready to open, it's called Striking Beauty. It's early tall case clocks from New Jersey. Mm. So New Jersey was a clock-making center in the 18, or 1780s to the early 1900s, or 1800s. And these are works of art in that it's a decorative art, it's a wooden thing, it's technologically advanced. They were clocks that worked. They are clocks that still work. And they're just beautiful. And we really have clocks from all over the state. So we think that it will be a very big draw. And we do have a clock by a man called Peter Hill, who was a, he learned the trade as an enslaved person. And then after he was freed, he became a clockmaker himself. Hmm. So we're very excited to have that clock as well. Interesting. Yeah. I, I went to the, the Ma Bell exhibition and I just thought it was just so, it's just so interesting. I mean, it's such a big part of the history of New Jersey. It, and that's what really surprised people is yeah. really how much stuff happens in this state. Yeah. And that's really what we try to celebrate through time. Yeah. That was very interesting. I mean, it, it was really fun going through the- Well, the we exhibit. tried to make it human is we had the stuff that Ma Bell invented, but it's also the people that did it. Yeah. And so getting to delve into women being operators was an early career for women, the linemen, but then it was also the scientists and all of that, that everything that came out of, it was really an extraordinary place. And then in talking about it and learning about it, it can't be replicated. You know, right. it was such a moment in time in American history. Yeah. Yeah, I think I have, well, I don't think I know. I have a great aunt that was a switchboard operator. And I believe that we have a picture somewhere of her 
sitting, at, uh, sit, sitting at the, you know, in front of this huge thing, right. you know, and they have all the wires they're pulling and, and whatever. Well, but, and they didn't want women to do it initially. They wanted it to be the men, the young boys that were going to go into the line work, but they learned boys like practical jokes <laughs> and <laughs> were sort of ungovernable. So that's how it became a woman's career. <laughs> Amazing. I think Mormon also has what you, I think what you call signature events. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. So maybe we could talk so, about that. Well, we are already planning for Morvin in May, which is our Briggs spring fundraiser. And again, the carryover from the pandemic is we've moved it all outside. And so it is a big garden party and people have really responded to that. The winter version of it is Festival of Trees. And we moved that outside too during the pandemic. And it was a big gamble. It's like, oh, are people going to be willing to do this? But we got a couple of fire pits and we decided that people really like dressing up in their fancy coats and being yeah. outside in the twinkle lights. And so those events have, both of them have sold out year after year for the past couple of years, which is fun. Yeah. And then, of course, we have our 4th of July. Being the home of a signer, we have to celebrate the 4th of July. And so that's a big free family event. And so we do it during the day. It's, I believe, 12 to 3 have food trucks, family activities, music, just a fun day. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I was there last year, and, you know, food trucks are out front. And there's a lot of activities out back. You know, the property is really nice for an outdoor activity. It is. It is. There's a lot of space to spread out. Yeah. And everybody loves a food truck. <laughs> yeah, everybody loves a food truck. You get some food, but, you know. And then, and then I, I guess at the, you know, at some of the events you have, Live music, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, usually on the patio of the. We the pool house patio has proven to be a wonderful stage. Yeah. And then it's sometimes hard to tell, but next to the pool house used to be the tennis court, so it's a nice, very flat, level oh. place for the audience to sit. Right. And we usually wrap it up by eight, so the neighbors don't get too annoyed. <laughs> but we've learned everybody loves when the symphony is playing. That everybody's yeah. out in their backyards listening. So. Yeah, I imagine that's uh, yeah. Yeah. Now I know when I was there last year, they, the, well, the, at least the evening I was there, mm-hmm. well, I was quite a crowd. So it's fun. Yeah. yeah. And we're, lo- we're looking at ways to do that more and more often. Yeah. So speaking of that, are there other, like, you know, what plans for the next three to five years, anything big coming about or uh, different? Well, or? we have the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So oh, that. that's sort of a big <laughs> deal in our world. So right now, over the past Three years, we've been doing some capital improvements that hopefully you don't notice, the windows and the shutters. This summer, we will ice to whitewash the house, Mm. so it'll get a fresh coat of quote-unquote paint before the big day. But we are already planning on having a special exhibition on the second floor that celebrates all five of New Jersey's signers Mm. and getting into their lives. And we're working on a partnership with Revolution NJ, which is the statewide effort, where they'll have a traveling exhibition of the stories of sort of the regular people during that time. And it will it will travel around the state and send people to Morvan if they want to know about the signers, and then we'll send it to wherever the traveling show is, which will be a nice statewide partnership for us. But it should be a big year for Princeton overall, that uh, Princeton really had a great deal of New Jersey's AMREV history going on. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of pivotal history that happened 
Yeah. Right here. Yeah, right here. Right here. People <laughs> don't realize it. I mean, people drive by the battlefield and I don't think most people understand. That was it. That, that, that turned the tide of the, of the, the revolutionary. Right. War. That was, that was the moment. So, yeah. and again, we're working with all of our peer institutions and trying to coordinate so we don't duplicate effort, but we also can partner and strengthen and market how we need to. Yeah. Well, that's going to be Oh, I think there'll be a lot to look forward to. I, I think the town will be hopping that entire year. I would think so. I would think so. So, Jill, I just want to say thank you very much for having joined us today. Well, this has been fun. I always enjoy talking about Morven, and it's always nice to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for the 35th episode of the Princeton Podcast, produced by the podcast production team at HG Media, providing audio and video production services here in Princeton since 1999. If you enjoyed this episode of the Princeton Podcast, please share it with your friends. Visit our website at princetonpodcast.com and be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.